Hi, I'm Steve Smith. I'm with Brandon Flanagan. Welcome to the Great Bay's Tennis Podcast, episode 68. We're speaking to you from Boynton Beach, Florida, FM Tennis Performance Center. Say that. How do you say it? The FM Tennis Performance Center. Good, good, good. We have a great interview ahead of us. We're going to talk to Doug Verdick, the son of Jim Verdick. We have eight pillars with the Great Base. And I think at Jim Verdick, I think a team. I mean, I think a coach. I think what Jim Lair said, the two Jims were great friends, is that when Jim Verdick came out of his mother's womb, he was wearing a baseball cap, carrying a clipboard and wearing a whistle. <laughs> He's the coach. Uh, but to carry the torch for what he did, be, be enlightening to just talk about um, why and how he was so successful. With team, this past weekend, uh, team tennis was on. And it's great, Billie Jean King, you take your hat off to her for just keeping it going, keeping it going. And the, the team tennis had so many different formats. And not knowing much about it, um, you know, I think of John Laftiaga, who was a student of ours, Austin Krychek, people that we've worked with that were involved, but just nobody in the stands. Right. And the other day, again, just a soundbite, I don't know why, maybe they're injured, but uh, Tennis Canada with Davis Cup now being a completely different format. I just heard where Dennis uh, and Felix, the two top Canadians, were not participating. Mm -hmm. And as a result, Canada had such a weak team. Mm. But I think that's something with all junior tennis players, and that's a a space, a lane that I've been in forever, is they have to learn to be a team member. Um, But we we had our first podcast um, on Doug, on Doug's dad, um, which we'll find out that Doug refers to his father all the time as coach. Um, but listeners, if you wanted to go back and listen to that, um, if you haven't already, that certainly would be, I think, appropriate to listen to that first. And then, but, but if you obviously you're listening to this and then you have time to go back and backtrack, um, but let's, uh, let's get Doug on the phone. Ring one. Hello. Doug, Doug Verdick with uh, Steve and Brandon. Hey, Great Base Tennis Podcast. Thanks for being a guest. Um, with uh, just telling our listeners, going through a uh, few things about your dad that we had the f- first podcast and we're just trying to solidify. Like many podcasts, I think, are more like a magazine where they're just interviewing people. What we'd like to do is go back and certainly we'd love to talk to him more than just this one time tonight is... Uh, the game of tennis, the young tennis teachers, upcoming tennis teachers should really know why and how your dad was so successful. But let, let's get into uh, a little bit about your tennis first. Uh, why don't you do that? And then by doing that, obviously, you start talking about the Verdict family. Okay. One quick note. I listened to your podcast on Coach, who, and we all called him Coach, even though he's my dad. And you guys are, I applaud you. You're doing an excellent job. And coaches are fortunate to have what you are bringing to them and trying to create better coaches. So good job, guys. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, you started in Redlands, right? You were, where were you born? Uh, born and raised in Redlands. So my dad took the job there at the University of Redlands in 1946. I was born in 48. My older sister, Chris, was born in 46. So uh, Randy, brother Randy, two years younger, born in 50. And then Debbie, five years younger, she was born in 53. So all of us grew up in Redlands. 
And did you play multiple sports like your dad did? Uh, I did. Uh, uh, you know, we we didn't play much football. We played Pop Warner football. I played ninth grade football. I played basketball through uh, through high school. Wasn't very good, but the game was different. You didn't have to be very good. I was a decent athlete, so good on defense. Uh, not the best ball handler or shooter, but it got me on the court. And then uh, brother Randy uh, didn't play, take up football until his senior year in high school where he was all league. And then he also played football at Redlands uh, as well as an All-American in tennis. He was a, a small college All-American honorable mention in football. Wow. So he was a, a two-sport star. And your dad at one point, he, he, I mean, he played, what, three sports at Stanford and he was a football coach. Well. He he was the athlete of the family. So in high school, his sophomore, junior, senior year, he lettered in football, baseball, basketball, and track. Varsity lettered in four sports, three straight years. And his senior year, he was captain of at least two of those. So uh, football was his primary sport. Uh, he uh, was inducted into the city of Colton, which is uh, not too far from Redlands, but a smaller community inducted into their Hall of Fame. He went on to play at San Bernardino Junior College, where he was a small college All-American, inducted into their Hall of Fame. And uh, in the Junior College Southern California Championship, San Bernardino played Pasadena, that had Jackie Robinson as their star uh, running back. So San Bernardino won the game 7-6. to six. Uh, My dad was the center on the team, as well as the defensive back. And he kicked the extra point. So they scored. Kicked the, he kicked the extra point. Uh, Pasadena scored. He blocked their extra point. So <laughs> wow. he, he, he was pretty phenomenal. And as, uh, as a small guy for football, uh, 5'10", if he really stretched, 178 pounds, went to Stanford on a football scholarship and uh, you know started his, his first year there. He was there for two years. Uh, on their uh, their team and their last team in senior year were undefeated. So he's in the Stanford Hall of, da- Hall of Fame, the High School Hall of Fame, uh, the San Bernardino Junior College Hall of Fame, and then of course the Redlands Hall of Fame, and and a total of eight Hall of Fames. <laughs> wow! Did he, so did he, play, he was the athlete. Did he play in the Rose Bowl? He played in the Rose Bowl. Yeah, he uh, he was not the starting center. They brought somebody in that was bigger, stronger. He got hurt, so my dad got to play. And so that, uh, Frankie Albert was the quarterback. Uh, they were undefeated. They beat Alabama in 41 in that hall of, uh, in that Rose Bowl. Wow. Wow. It's a little, little different format back then. Remember, um, President Gerald Ford was a football player as well. The, yeah. But back, yeah. back in the day, um, yeah, every, everyone played three sports. Uh, it wasn't, as you know, um, Way back when, it wasn't really fair for women. You know, you don't really hear the term tomboy anymore. But uh, I think that was pretty much the American model for boys. They'd play football in the fall where they'd get tough. Um, then basketball was so good for the feet and the hands. And baseball, to, you know, which all turns into skills for tennis where people could serve from throwing the ball. And then learning to hit a baseball is no, any, no not an easy feat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to further talk about uh, coaching in sports, uh, the only sport he didn't play in high school was tennis. 
And at Stanford, he, he wasn't a tennis player, so he didn't play at Stanford. He played intramurals, and I think he may have been the intramural champion. But he picked up tennis because my mom was the tennis player in the family. She was number one on the high school team. She was two years younger. She was a sophomore when he was a senior. He decided that uh, he wanted to get to know her, so he would start uh, hitting tennis balls, and they would go on tennis dates. And so he took up the game so he could date my mom. And, uh, you know, he, he had a lot to learn and, uh, you know, and he did, uh, I asked him as a football player, how did you, how were you successful at your size playing center? And, uh, he's somebody that learned the value of technique at a young age. And he said, well, I had good technique. And he said, you know, I, I couldn't knock anybody down, but I could hit them and hit them and hit them. And so he was like a battering ram. He'd hit them once and hit them again and hit them again and uh, became pretty good at it. <laughs> and he was a tough guy. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, at Sweetbriar, the program Dennis Vandermeer had in the summer is that uh, your dad just had so much energy. He was learning how to knock a golf ball around. He'd be out there early in the morning and then, you know, before the sun would go down, he'd be out, you know, just hitting plastic golf balls around the Sweetbriar campus. Yeah. Just a worker, huh? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, he would, I think from his military days, he'd get up at five in the morning. Uh, for the the players on the team, uh, they need equipment, this and that. So he, he kind of created a little pro shop in his garage where he'd have shoes and string rackets and you know, different accessories for his players. And then occasionally some of the city people would, would get some things. And he'd be out there stringing rackets at five in the morning. Somebody needed a racket, he'd string it. Hmm. So, uh, you know, he did it all. <laughs> I think of his passion where um, I never watched him watch tennis on TV where he wasn't with a clipboard charting. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to just sit back and casually watch the match. He was going to chart it. Uh, he couldn't, he couldn't sit there and watch. I mean, it just, it would drive him crazy, get too antsy. And I'm not sure exactly, we'll talk a lot about his charting, but I'm not sure exactly when he started doing that. And it might've been when he would go to junior tournaments with my brother and I, and he couldn't sit there and watch us play. It was just, it was too much, uh, too much nervous energy. So he would roam around and we never knew where he was, but he was watching every point. And then a little later on, he, he started, he came, developed his own charting system and he would sit in a chair in the corner of a court and he'd chart every point. And then he could stay there because he had a job to do. It gave him, uh, you know, he was into the match. He was part of it. And as, and uh, when it was done, you know, he knew what we all needed to work on. With um, my last name being Smith, I was at the NCA's. And it was Peter Smith, Stan Smith, and myself, three Smiths. And uh, I remember Stan was talking about how much George Foley helped him out. And back when Stan played, when he went, uh, freshman couldn't play. But he's talking about how great a coach uh, George Foley was. And then I just asked him, what was it like to work with Jim Verdick? And he looked at me and he said, I can't believe you asked that. And then he, then he said <laughs> that his father would put him on a bus and he would go to from Pasadena to Redlands. Uh, do you remember meeting Stan Smith and all that as a young kid? Oh, yeah. I was, uh, Stan just started playing tennis. He was a late bloomer. Started when he was 13. I think he was playing basketball at the time. I was 11. 
his brother was going to the University of Redlands. So his dad brought him out to visit the brother and said, is there anyone that Stan can hit with? He said, yeah, I can hit with my son, Doug. Uh, and so we played a couple sets. And I much prefer it when Stan tells the story than I do. But Stan will tell you he didn't win a game, <laughs> and, uh, which, which was the case. And, uh, but he, he got pretty good by the time he was 18 as national junior champion. Yeah. There's a famous story where when he tried to be a ball boy at first, they wouldn't let him be a ball boy because he didn't show the coordination enough to qualify. But interesting. Uh, my dad would go up to, uh, the Pacific Northwest in the summers because it was too hot in Redlands. And the first summer he went up there was 1962, uh, in 61, we went back and played the national 11 and 13 and unders at uh, uh, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee. But uh, when Stan was 17, Perry T. Jones, who ran the Southern California Tennis Association, felt he was not ready to play the nationals. So he sent him up to the Pacific Northwest, and he played the, the Northwest Circuit. Tom Gorman was up there. Uh, Dick Knight was my age. Uh, and Stan and I actually played Stan in the finals of the 18 unders. He was 18, 16. And, um, then the next year he's good enough to go to the nationals and he wins it. Wow. With, uh, tell us when did, uh, Dennis Vandermeer meet your dad? You tell me it was 75. It, it was the, it may have been before 75, but in 1975, I remember clearly, uh, he had a, he just started his tennis universities where he would travel around and bring a group of people and, and teach them how to teach. And, uh, so they did a tennis university in 1975 at the university of Redlands. And, uh, I, I, I couldn't remember why I was there. I was in Hawaii at the time, but I flew back and I was there. And Dennis had Mark, Margaret Smith Court there uh, practicing. Uh, he was one of her coaches. And uh, I would practice with uh, Margaret Court, uh, which was a treat. And so that was kind of where they really hit it off and their connection started. And when PTR uh, first got going, and so that led to a long, very successful relationship for, I think, both of them. I think the PTR um, was actually 77 when they finally started. You know, Dennis was training okay. tennis teachers, but I think that was the first year they they had an exam. I might be off by a year, but with... Yeah, uh, no, and that's probably right, but that's about when they they got together at the very start of PTR. Yeah, I, I met your dad through Dennis, and we had this program for tennis teachers where they got a two-year degree, and your dad would come out. But it was... Uh, and I would, you know, spend time with him, uh, every, you know, in the summer times. At one point, he was with Dennis the whole summer. Uh, yeah, he loved that. It was Sweetbriar. He would go back, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's another story I can tell about, uh, you know, how tough coach is. So, did he ever talk about his heart attack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, 1979. He was 59 years old, not 60 yet. And he was out jogging, which he did. He always tried to stay in shape. And he started getting nauseous, started getting, you know, 
some pains. And so he kind of walked home and he told my mom, he said, I don't feel well. And so he went to bed and had a rough night and threw up some. And she said, Jimmy, you got to go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor and they did test. He said, Jim, you've had a heart attack. He said, no, I've got the flu. And they said, no, you've had a heart attack. He said, well, I don't believe it. So he made them show him the test results and the textbook where it showed that he had a heart attack. And then he, then he got a little concerned and they said, we've got to do a bypass. And he said, well, um, I can't do it till after the nationals. And he said, Jim, if we don't do it, you might die. And he said, if I don't, if I don't take my team to the nationals, I might as well be dead. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, so he, they said, you got to lay low. So he had one of his players, Rusty Miller, uh, oversee most of the practices. And then they flew back to the nationals and they won. And then, uh, he came back and had his five bypass heart surgery. Uh, and then, uh, he's in the hospital and he doesn't like to sit around. So he got up and went for a walk outside the hospital. That's a no, no. And, uh, uh, they found him and they said, what are you doing? He said, I just went for a walk. He said, you've had five bypass heart surgery Get back in your room. And so uh, then after that, uh, he was very motivated to go back to Sweetbriar and do the camps. And they said, Jim, you can't go. Uh, you've got to recover from this. And so he started walking around the track, uh, which was behind our house. We live next to the high school. And he would chart his times. And he'd go to the doctor and he said, look at I'm, I'm charting my times. He said, Jim, you can't go. And so he would continue charting and, and walking. And he went back in again and he showed him the improvement. He said, I can't keep you. Just go. Go ahead. Go. So uh, uh, I don't know how many weeks after his five bypass heart surgery, he went back so he could join Dennis and, and do the, the camps at Sweetbriar again. So he, he was a tough coot. And how old did your dad live to be? 82. 82, so wow. Yeah, there's another story there. So at 82, uh, he was a volunteer coach at the local uh, high school. He retired down to Ranch Bernardo, and Poway was a, a community just outside of Ranch Bernardo. So he um, introduced himself to the coach, and he was a volunteer doubles coach for the girls' high school team. And he was on his way to watch the matches uh, when he had basically had a, a heart attack, uh, blood pressure dropped, and he passed out and unfortunately hit another car. And so uh, he went in the hospital. I got a call, and I see he's a bleeder and didn't think he was going to make it, and he didn't make it. But uh, the family kind of gathered around. So typical coach. He, he never stopped coaching. He was on his way to volunteer at the local girls' high school. With, um, I've heard so many people say so many nice things about your dad, but I think one way to find your dad is that someone would come to Redlands as a freshman and they wouldn't be in the lineup, but there's four years later they'd be an All-American. You know, they would be helping with the water jug or helping with the medicine kit, and but they would just be part of the program and... Uh, building a team from the bottom up, you know, taking the, um, your dad, I liked your dad's line, the, the hamburger coach where they just buy new meat. Could, you know, <laughs> where, where he 
he was truly developing players because he, and he tells us a little bit about Redlands. It was Division Three and NIA, correct? Two different divisions. Uh, yeah, they didn't. They had NIA before they had a Division Three, and so he would. Uh, his only option was to play NIA, and then Division Three came later, and he would kind of bounce back and forth. But he he just felt the competition was better in the NIA. So he chose to play that uh, uh, more often. More of his national championships were NEIA. I think 11 NEIA out of the 15. And uh, maybe only three or four were Division Three. And um, no scholarships, is that correct? No scholarships. Uh, oh. I believe Redlands is the only school to ever win the national champ- NEIA national championships without scholarships. Uh, I think that's accurate. And, uh, you know, and they won 11 times. So, yeah, his record is pretty phenomenal because in his last 20 years uh, at Rattlands, he won 14 of his 15 national championships. And so that's six years he didn't win it. Four of those years, he was second. Uh, and every second just about killed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, through his charting, uh, not just the charting matches, but every drill. You know, he'd have players you know, doing a mini tennis exercise and he would chart it. And I remember one time saying, don't, don't players get tired of that? And he said, well, if they do, I know they won't, they won't be com- competitive when it really counts. Mm. Um, yeah, why don't you just share some ideas on or the routines, I mean, the day-to-day, I mean, why and how is he so successful? Yeah, uh, practices were not, uh, show up and go hit balls. Uh, every single practice was organized. And much of it was organized around either your lesson time and everybody on the team had two lessons a week and, and you had a scheduled time. And if there were matches, then that may uh, may eliminate the second one. But we had lessons twice a week and then every day was competition. And he created competition in every way you could imagine, and he kept track. Uh, he would have steady game round robins where you go out, the ball had to go over the net twice, and then you play to 25. And uh, he would keep track who won that steady game. Uh, we would have a ladder based on your results in the steady game. And the ladder started first day of practice. Uh, my Senior year, I had just won the NEI Nationals three years in a row. I came in second in the round robin we did. I started the team at second. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I was going to be one, then I better get my standing in gear and start winning some of these round robins. So we would have a serve game round robin where you would have to serve and come in and, you know, keep track of the score. Uh, you'd serve so many points, and then the other guy would serve so many points and determine a winner and a loser. We'd have volley game round robins where you would start half of the single score at the service line, and you'd put a ball in play two times, and then you'd play it out and kept track of that. Uh, and then there were challenge matches, and those were pretty intense. And we had enough of them that uh, you were happy to play another team so you didn't have to play against your teammate. Uh, It would be nice to beat up on somebody else rather than have beat up on each other. But everything everything we did uh, had a purpose, 
And a lot of it was to just get exposed to competition, learn how to handle it. Well, with his own fitness, that must have really helped him as a coach. So when you, you're doing the push-ups, he's doing the push-ups with you, and that must have been well, part of it. Yeah, I mean, you had mentioned in your podcast on him that he was a uh, Marine Corps uh, obstacle course champion, had the record two years in, for two years. Well, uh, he he was a fit individual. When he had his tournament, uh, his heart attack, you know, he got fit and got back in the game. And when the football coach had his, he had such a tough time to recovering. And he said, "Jim, how did you do it?" Well, just different mentality. He was a, he was a, he took care of himself. He was a different animal. His heart attack was not from being out of shape. It was from being so um, so motivated to win another national championship that it was just he was just a driven individual in in that regard. Um, yeah, there's something else that's going to mention. Oh, a, a lot of his coaching and his approach to it came from being a football coach. Uh, he went to University of Redlands, hired him not as a tennis coach because he never coached tennis. Uh, they hired him as a football coach. He was at San Bernardino Junior College as one of their football coaches. And he said, Jim, will you come to Redlands? And he said, yes. And he said, uh, we also need a tennis coach. And he said, I can coach tennis. And he had a lot to learn, but uh, that's when he started, you know, as a tennis coach. And uh, as a football coach, he became head football coach. Uh, he had the only undefeated, untied team in the history of Redlands. So uh, with football, it was frustrating for him because he would have to get 11 guys doing the right thing on every play or the play broke down. So trying to get 11 guys disciplined, structured, and working together was very tough on him. Uh, I remember growing up, he would be in the, the kitchen watching the old projectors, you know, and he would run it back and forth, back and forth. He was studying not just what his team would do, but he was studying the next team. Who do they play? Where's their weakness? How do I, uh, how do I, how do I attack it? And he would write his plays and his notes and everything else, watching his film back and forth. And then um, uh, a lot of what he put his football players through as far as practice structures and this and that, what no other coach, other coach had done, he applied it to his tennis. And so a lot of the discipline and structure and everything else uh, he put into tennis, he got from being a football coach. And eventually he just, did away with the football. He said, I'm done and just focused on the tennis. And, uh, and, and that became his passion uh, for sure. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you about that as, you know, talking about your, your dad's athletic background, um, you know, at Stanford, but it's, it's really now, if you look at the way tennis has, has changed over the years, of course, junior players are specializing so early. And then a lot of the coaches who are coaching in the sport are recognized as excellent coaches, maybe not because of what they've studied, but because of what they've accomplished as a player. Um, so it's it's just it's great to hear you know the the positive effects of your dad's you know well-rounded athletic background and how that shaped his you know his his uh, coaching philosophies. Yeah, uh, tennis players, the development has changed so much. Uh, what my brother and I did growing up as kids. 
and what players that played for Redlands were exposed to. A lot of programs weren't doing that yet. And now there's so much with sports science and, you know, the USTA, what they're trying to do uh, and what the world's doing in getting these guys to be better fit athletes is uh, pretty remarkable. And he got an early start to that. Mm-hmm. It was We didn't lose a match because somebody was in better shape. Um, that just wasn't going to happen. We lost because they were more talented. They were more skilled. And yet we still won our share against guys that were more talented and more skilled because of the way we've been trained. Now, one thing you go back to the football comment is uh, three types of sports, non-contact, contact, and collision. Uh, I think that I think that every young boy in America, you know, you know, with all the concussions today, not not older older boys, but the younger boys, uh, they could learn so much from playing. You know, I I know I played pop Warner football. There's just something about the collision. It's uh, the, the tennis kids. Uh, they have the net, which is a barrier. Um, with um, they have the football mentality. I do still think to this day that uh, that's one of the cultures, subcultures of sport that still teaches those life lessons. Well, and yeah, there's nothing like a team sport like football, basketball, you know, baseball, which uh, to the detriment of tennis, when you you get into college, uh, particularly, it's a team sport. And and, uh, that really pulls the guys together. And that's where you really learn and improve. Unfortunately, so many college tennis these days, so many of the scholarships go to foreign students. Mm. And that once upon a time, that wasn't the case. Uh, you go back to Arthur Ashe, Dan Smith. Uh, Jimmy Connors went to college for a year. McEnroe went to college for a year. But prior to that, uh, the top Americans all went to college. And now uh, many of them aren't getting that. Uh, some of our best uh, juniors... Uh, you know, if they go to college for four years, I guess Isner is a pretty good example. Somebody that went all four years, and I'm sure became a much better player. Uh, but uh, a lot of the foreign kids are getting that opportunity, and too many of the American kids are not, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we, or they can really grow. Yeah, that's part of our mission is we'd love to see more American kids play American college tennis. Uh, Doug, growing, Absolutely. Growing up in, in Redlands, obviously – that wasn't San Diego, that wasn't L.A., um, was it a much more competitive environment? So when you'd go to junior tournaments as a young kid going in from Redlands to, say, L.A.? Uh, yeah, let me tell, uh, I'll just talk a little bit about our, our juniors. And my I, I got serious at tennis when I was eight. I went to the Ojai tournament, which is a huge tournament in Southern California, and I would travel with my dad's team. And at eight... I saw Dennis Ralston play, and he was either 15 or 16 years old. And I was amazed at somebody that I considered to still not be an adult, be a, an older kid, could be that good. And I said, yeah, I want to play tennis. So I was eight. My brother was six. And that's people say, when did you start playing tennis? Well, I didn't get serious till I was eight. And so, um, it, you know, with, with coach, uh, elementary school, you have lunch recess. I would ride my bike up to the university and have a tennis lesson. And then I'd ride back and, you know, you know, recess would be over and go back to class. So uh, I would have maybe two days a week. My brother would have two days. And my days, I would always be there. 
Uh, Brother Randy maybe didn't accomplish quite as much because he was more into the other sports. So on some of the days where it was his turn to go have a lesson, uh, he wouldn't go. He was too involved in the kickball game. And he told his friends, if my dad comes, let me know. And uh, so coach would go up to Rattler and say, you know, have you seen Randy? He said, no, I haven't seen him. Well, he's hiding behind a tree. And afterwards, uh, coach would say, it was your day for a lesson. Where were you? I thought it was Doug's day. (laughs) So he kind of skipped out. But to get us in shape, uh, there was a river wash outside of Redlands, and they had built up these sand hills. And so coach, all of it, a lot of competition, even at a young age. So he would take us out there. We were maybe, you know, 10 and 12, 9, 11, something like that. And we would run up and down the sand hill. And my brother and I were very competitive, and I was two years older. So I would go fast enough to lap him, and I would be one ahead. And then the rest of the time, I would just match him. So he was frustrated. He would always try to catch me, but he couldn't go faster than me. So I always did one more than he did. And Coach, I think, kind of knew that was going to happen. So that was part of us motivating and competition pushing us, uh, pushing each other. Hmm. You know, one thing we we talked about in the last podcast was the, the King Richard movie. I'm sure you've seen it at this point. Have you? I have not seen it yet. I've just. I, I just, uh, my daughter sent me a link, said that you can watch it, and I turned it on to see if I could get it, and I just haven't found the time to watch it, but I've heard it's good. Yeah, it's very, it's And very, I, I want to watch it. Yeah, it's it's excellent, but uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, you know, the relationship, which is, is so common, I think, if you look at a lot of the top players, and certainly, you know, parents, if they're not actively coaching their own kids, and I'm sure a lot of people who do listen to this podcast are looking for some advice on that as well. But, you know, the unique relationship of a parent who also is a coach, obviously that was a big theme in the movie with with King Richard. Uh, but if you look at a lot of the top players, their parents are coaches or teaching pros or had a very, very, you know, a huge impact on their, on their children, you know, in their development. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not an easy relationship to have your parent as your primary coach. Um, with my dad, it was, uh, it, it's, he didn't force it on us. Mm. Uh, he didn't um, dictate that we do it. Uh, you know, I probably more so than my brother just decided that, you know, I, I wanted to be a tennis player. And he would ask me, Doug, why did you practice so much? And I said, well, I hated to lose. It's not that I had to win. I just hated to lose. I also was a mentality where I didn't like missing. So I knew it took a lot of repetition. But uh, Coach was very creative in giving us the opportunity. Uh, Steve, I think you asked about uh, Redlands was not a hotbed for tennis, although they started a junior program in Redlands so they could develop kids, and that's where he got some of his players. But uh, I was fortunate that there were no rules prohibiting a young person playing with college players. So I grew up playing against my dad's team and it was kind of freshman uh, initiation. A freshman would come in and he said, well, I want you to play my son. So he'd play me and I'd beat him and he got inducted to tennis at Redlands. But I I grew up playing with the best guys on his team. So that really helped me. Mm. Uh, The hotbed of Southern Cal tennis was Los Angeles Tennis Club. And we would go in there uh, as often as we could. 
to any programs that they had, but we played tournaments everywhere. And, uh, you know, the, the lessons at noontime were just where we could squeeze it in. And then we'd go up to the university and that's where we would play with the players on the team and get our practice. And, uh, in addition to the short noon school noontime lesson, we would have other lessons. So, uh, we were, we were taught the game. Uh, we hit a lot of balls. Um, when I was 11, or when I was 13, my brother was 11, we went back to the, the Nationals, and they were on clay in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there were no clay courts in Southern California. So what my dad did was the track had a straightaway, a dirt track. And so he went and uh, used the chalk to paint some lines and rigged up a net. And we went out and practiced on the dirt. Uh, so we could, you know, just experience what it's like to hit on a surface it's not a smooth hard court can't say we learned to slide uh but it worked out pretty well because uh randy got to the finals of the 11th and i got to the finals of the 13th and uh a prior tournament to that um uh there was a guy named nick bolateri who had a student robin fry uh and uh brother randy beat his best student robin fry so then uh, Nick was following my dad around, asking him questions, you know, how he worked with this, what did he do, this and that. So there, they got to meet each other back in 1961. Wow. Uh, small world. <laughs> it must have really helped out that your mom was an athlete, too, that uh, I think many times what will happen is parents will cancel each other out. But, um, but so your your mother certainly understood the journey to become a tennis player, correct? Yeah, no, she was, uh, it, it, it takes so much support from the entire family. So, uh, yeah, she was very involved in many tournaments. Uh, coach couldn't take us, so my mom would take us. She would sit through them and she would get to know the other moms. And, uh, it's, it's a whole tennis culture. Uh, with, with my dad and being the coach, um, you know, he, Every player he had, whether it was us, you know, as guinea pigs for, you know, some of the things he learned to do or uh, players on his university team, uh, no matter how hard we worked, we, we, we didn't put in the time he put in. And uh, one thing that was tough is if we lost a match, uh, he didn't get down on us. He got down on himself. Mm. Yeah. He, you know, he'd say, well, I, I guess I just didn't do enough. <laughs> and, and, uh, it, it just was a message. Okay. Whatever I'm doing, I got to do more. Mm. With, uh, Redlands played against a lot of the top Southern Cal teams, like played matches against USC and UCLA, correct? Uh, well, that's, that's all part of his story because coach, felt strongly that, uh, and I mentioned it to you on a short conversation the other day, Steve, to be the best, you got to play the best. So uh, his record was 921 wins and 281 losses. Uh, of the 281 losses, 256 were to Division One schools. That means out of 38 years, he only lost 25 times to a non-Division One school. Wow. Uh, of the schools he played, he had a, at least a win 
if, if we have the time, I'll read these because it's pretty extensive. And why did he play Division One schools? Well, we would travel to play them on the West Coast, but then any program that wanted to come to the West Coast and get some matches earlier in the tennis season, they'd say, you know, who can we play? And they say, we play Redlands. They've got a good program. So they would come out, and we would play them at the University of Redlands. And here's the different schools. Um, I think it's alphabetical. Air Force Academy, Arizona, Arizona State, Boston College, Cal Berkeley, Fresno State, Long Beach State, Los Angeles State, Sacramento State, San Diego State, San Francisco, San Jose State, Colorado, Dartmouth, Drake, Hawaii, Iowa, UC Irvine, Michigan State, Missouri, Montana State, Nevada, Las Vegas, New Mexico, New Mexico State, Northwestern, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oregon, Pepperdine, Stanford, UC Santa Barbara, Tennessee, Texas Tech, Tulsa, USC, Utah, Washington, Wyoming. Uh, those are the schools. Most of them came to Redlands. Uh, Stanford, Cal, we always went up there. Uh, Coach had at least one win against those schools, and some he had a winning record against. The, play, the other teams he played that he never had a win against were Brigham Young, Harvard, Yale, Texas Christian, UCLA, and University of South Carolina. Uh, so UCLA, we only played at US, UCLA. USC, we played home and away at Redlands and at USC each year. Uh, and most of those, as I said, most of the others showed up in Redlands. So pretty amazing that uh, he would play that, that many schools, but that's how he got better than other small schools. He, he played the best. And everybody had to had to get better, could had you, to step up. Doug, could you repeat the the win loss and how many losses were to uh, non Division one teams? Well, yeah, his total wins were nine hundred and twenty one. Uh, his total losses were two hundred and eighty one. Of the two hundred and eighty one losses, two hundred and fifty six were to Division one schools. And of the uh, Division One schools, he had 301 wins over Division One schools. So he had more wins than losses against mm-hmm. Division One teams. With no scholarship and, players. Uh, and we had no scholarship players. Uh, uh, he had 25, in his 38 years, only 25 losses to a school that was not uh, a Division One school. So not too many. Claremont was always the, the the challenge, the next best team in the league, and they've they've got a good program now on a small scale. And uh, his record against Claremont was forty nine and three, <laughs> so he didn't he didn't lose much. Wow. <laughs> With um, yourself, as far as um, going to Redlands, I mean, obviously you and your brother were. The, did so well in juniors. Uh, you could have gone to other schools. Why don't you elaborate upon that? Why, why you didn't end up going to Redlands? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a story there, and George Tolley's part of it. Uh, my last year in the juniors, I was on the Junior Davis Cup team my last two years, and my last year I was uh, quarters of Kalamazoo, semis of doubles, number two in Southern Cal behind Steve Avoyer, who uh, won the national juniors that year. I lost him in the finals of the sectional Southern Cal. And every year at Ojai, they have the big tournament, and they have the 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 
Pac-12 uh, division. They have an open division. They have junior college. They have university division. And then they have the age groups. So I was there playing in the 18 and unders. And uh, USC, George Tolley would take the top, top juniors in Southern Cal out to dinner with the team at the Ojai Valley Inn. And so, uh, and, and I, I knew he had that practice, but, uh, but I didn't get an invitation. So the day after the dinner, the best returning player to Redlands said, Doug, why weren't you at US with at USC dinner with, uh, the team? You know, a boyer was there. Don Lutz was there. Uh, Jim Rombo, Tom Leonard. I said, why weren't you there? And I said, I wasn't invited. And he said, I'd tell him to stick it where the sun don't shine and come to Redlands, play with me. And uh, my feelings were hurt, and I thought about it, and I said, okay. And so I told my dad, uh, Coach, I'm going to come to Redlands. And he he smiled. He didn't try to talk me out of it. And then uh, later, Tolley gave him a call, and he said, well, I've got it all set for Doug. He's, you know, he's been accepted. I've got him a room in the dorm, you know, this and that. He said, have you talked to Doug? And he said, no. He said, well, oh, hi, you know, he took the players. You didn't invite Doug. He's decided to come to Redlands. He said, well, I thought he was traveling with your team. I didn't want to impose. So there was a different era of recruiting and no communication. And so uh, rather than going to USC and maybe being lost, you know, in a big C, I got to go to Redlands and help produce something. So it, it turned out, uh, for the best for me, and uh, I don't think Coach was unhappy. And then, so you and Randy are on the same team for two years, is that right? Still there? Yeah, we're here, yep. I just asked, though, Randy being two years younger, so you had two years on the same team at Redlands? Yeah, uh, we, uh, my first year was, first year there was 67, so uh, my freshman year, Coach won his third national title and then we won four we won four in a row and then he won the next year so uh brother randy came in my junior year his freshman year uh so i actually played him in the finals of um the nei his freshman year my junior year and um we won the doubles and the only match I came close to losing was that year. I was in the semifinals uh, playing Georgia Maya from Presbyterian College, and George went on to play some professionally. Uh, and I was down 5-4 in the third set, 15-40, uh, my serve, second serve. And my brother had already played at semi and won. And uh, I've told this story that there was – I, I told myself, there's no way my younger brother's going to get to the finals. He's never taken a set off me. There's no way he's going to get to the finals and I'm going to lose. So I uh, got my second serve in, won the point, won the game, won the match. And uh, so afterwards, they asked Coach, uh, Coach, what did you think of the match? He said, uh, best second serve I've ever seen. He <laughs> said, why is that? Because it went in. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Uh, so uh, that's a true story. So could you elaborate a little bit on your dad's logic? I mean, it seemed like he was always so logical. Okay, you're going to hit from A to B. I mean, you just get your racket, go towards the target. There was just so much common sense in his coaching. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned that I had a letter 
that he sent out to his or gave to his his freshmen when they came in, and uh, and, and and it would be it kind of tells his philosophy a little bit and and how he got things done the way he did. So if it's okay, I'll read this. It's it's somewhat lengthy. Oh, that'd be great. It's two pages here, uh, and this. I tried to figure out when he did this because so much of what he did, he evolved. Uh, every year he would find something better to do. He would add something. Um, so this was later on after he had already won uh, most of his national championships. So uh, he wrote, Welcome to Redlands. And, and everything he did, this is on an old typewriter and some of the keys are missing. And it's it, most of his notes are handwritten notes. There were no computers. So uh, pretty amazing stuff. But welcome to Redlands. The fact that you're attending this meeting would indicate that you aspire to be a varsity tennis player. The opportunity is yours. First, if tradition and statistics hold true, you new players will have a chance to play on a national championship team. No freshman has missed such a championship in the past 15 years. Second, if you are not presently a varsity caliber player, know that you can improve. Regardless of your freshman team ranking, know that every year someone improves into the first six of the ladder. Dedication through perseverance will be the most important attribute you can have. Third, every man on the team is important. Each must prepare to the best of his ability. Each can contribute the key points in a dual match or a national tournament. It's a matter of record that our fifth man reached the semifinals of the Nationals. Another year, our fourth man reached the finals, and yet again, our fifth man reached the finals. This can only happen if you prepare yourself. You must keep working. It's never too late to improve. Fourth, you have nine months of opportunity ahead of you. In this length of time, you can become a much-improved player through your own dedication. None of you could have possibly reached his ultimate ability level. You haven't been seriously working at your game that long, that hard, with competent direction, or with as great a competitive challenge as is now available. Some or all of these factors have been missing up till now. If your game was really developed at this point, I have reason to believe that you wouldn't be here in this program. You have the opportunity to work seven days a week during these next nine months. You will learn of your limitations, your percentages of success, and realize that you can and will improve on these percentages. You'll learn that you can work much harder physically, and from this, learn that you are then capable of working even harder because you have increased your capacity for work. All of your strokes will be scrutinized not as whether they are right or wrong, classical or unique, but whether they produce percentage-wise. Failing such scrutiny, you must accept improvement, not change, for more efficiency. Unfortunately, your concept of the stroke may be erroneous. More simply, maybe your swing is too big, perhaps overhitting, or perhaps just lack of a confidence, uh, perhaps just lack of confidence keeps the shot from being firm. Regardless, be confident that I can help you, and any suggestions will be for your own personal gain. No player on this squad is likely to go undefeated any given week. The competition is here. We aren't playing cutthroat. 
but accept the fact that if you aren't willing to accept the pressure of scratching, exerting, and scrambling to win, you won't be able to respond to the pressures of trying to defeat an opponent who is superior to yourself. No opponent will have more data. No opponent will be given the opportunity to work more physically than you on this squad. No coach will spend more time with you than I will this year, and your schedule will provide defeats for everyone. No opponent will have more of an opportunity than you will have to become a better tennis player. Now, it will be up to you to provide the motivational drive and persistency to attain a greatly improved level of play. So that would be a lot to uh, chew on for incoming freshmen. Mm, setting the expectations, though, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it's that's excellent. fantastic. I would love to get a copy of that and share that with our listeners. Um, I can. With, I can uh, send that to you. Yeah, super. No, just when you said uh, you have the opportunity, I mean, I heard your father say that so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, Brandon was with me as a student when uh, a young guy by the name of Chad Burial, he was with us and he went on and won a national uh, title in junior college. And then one of our students, Craig Tiley, yeah. who uh, spent a lot of time with uh, Coach Work, he was with us for seven years. It was circumstantial. He came in and he went through the two-year program and he stayed and you know, he had a degree from Stellenbosch, but he had to do work to get an undergraduate degree in the States. And then he got a master's. So um, he went on and um, he took Illinois from obscurity to winning national championship. But those are two. And we certainly have, have had others. Uh, I think of uh, Bruce Burke never was a student of any length, but he certainly sat in some workshops and he was under Craig Tiley. But uh, yeah, he, when Texas won the NCAs, I noticed where he got the, the Jim Verdict coaching award. Um, but I, I think that just the letter that you just, well, you just read, uh, I think that just summarizes our, our listeners on, you know, why I speak so highly of your father. I mean, that, that letter is just profound. With, um, Randy, you got another question? So I've got a few more here. Yeah, sure. Um, my question has to do with with uh, with what you talked about earlier about the it was something I think that t- the last twenty years of his coaching tenure uh, there were only was it only five years that he didn't win the national championship? Yeah, it was. He won fourteen of his fifteen his last twenty years, so there were six years he didn't win it, and four of those were seconds. Wow! So I, we had a yeah. conversation with Manny Diaz from uh, University of Georgia a few weeks ago, and one thing we uh-huh. talked about there was great coaches you know, seemingly like your father never stopped improving. Was there something specific, do you think, that allowed him to have more success in the last 20 years of his coaching career? Well, I think it showed he had some teams that would have won prior, but he didn't go to nationals. And part of it, they, they just couldn't afford it, and it wasn't something they did regularly. And then it wasn't until 1965, I believe, that he um, – he started going every year on a regular basis. So, um, yeah, and, and, you know, part of how did he do what he did, uh, a lot had to do with his using the air chart and using the, the competition and practice, finding out where the players broke down. He would find out where their weakness was. 
And every lesson was focused on their weakness. And if you didn't believe it, the air chart proved it to you. So, um, you know, I didn't have a big serve. So uh, for me to go to the net, I had to hit an, a, an approach shot. So I worked a lot on approach shots. Uh, if in doubles, you know, I needed a half volley. So I would, he would feed. I would get 200 half volleys just till I, you know, till I got it. Uh, return a serve. He taught return a serve. And it's amazing how many coaches don't teach return to serve. Right. You know, you, you know, just return serve. No, he taught return to serve, and there was a whole technique to it. And he was, uh, he was, he was a tough guy, but he would hold a basket over his left. Well, when he he would toss a lot of balls, he was tossing balls before anybody tossed balls. And every ball you hit had a target. He had targets for everything, where it should go over the net, uh, where your area was you know, where the target was. But return a serve, he would stand, uh, he couldn't hit a serve, but he could feed one. So he would stand at uh, three-quarters court uh, by the service line, and he would feed ball after ball after ball to your return a serve. Mm -hmm. And whether it was singles practice or doubles practice. Um, My top student was Pat Galbraith, who won 36 ATP doubles titles became number one in the world in doubles and uh, started with him when I was 13 and his best shot was return to serve because we did a zillion return to serves and it was just based on what I was taught. Mm. I didn't have a good serve, but I had a good return to serve. I didn't, I couldn't throw a ball. So that explained my serve, but there's no excuse for me not to learn to return serve. So uh, if you had a weakness, you spent time on it till it was no longer a weakness. Doesn't mean he didn't work on your strengths. Yeah, he did, but he made sure you didn't beat yourself. It reminds me of uh, which I'm sure you've read the uh, Daniel Coyle, the talent codes, deep, deep, purposeful practice, just really finding something to focus on. And uh, like you mentioned, he was the antithesis, antithesis of just rolling the balls out and having guys hit, <laughs> which you see that more and more in, in high level tennis coaching. Well, no, I, I mean, unfortunately, too many coaches are successful because they went internationally and found the best players they mm-hmm. could. Mm-hmm. And they, they pat them on the fanny and they say, go get them. Yeah. Well, coach didn't get those kind of players. He got somebody that was willing to learn and put in the work. Yeah, so I, I wrote down, uh, I think you guys talked in your um, podcast on coach about uh, the C's. Uh, you know, ahead, character, yeah, this yeah. and that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and I, wrote, I wrote down peace. I wrote down practice, persistence, poise, pride. Um, yeah. With, could we back up a little bit, uh, repeat those four P's? Um, I have some fun lines. Uh, proper preparation prevents uh, poor performance. Uh, certainly not mine. Yeah. Patrick Galbraith, yeah. uh, he's arguably one of the best players in the, to come out of the Pacific Northwest, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, there aren't too many. Uh, Tom Gorman uh, grew up at Seattle Tennis Club, where I was the director of tennis. Uh, Jonathan Stark out of Medford, Oregon, uh, worked with me at Seattle Tennis Club. He ran our junior program. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat Galbraith, uh, those are the big three when, when the game went professional. Uh, Grant Connell was up in Vancouver, BC, who was Pat's, uh, partner when they were number one in the world, you know, and then Pat, good for him, went on to be president of the USTA and mm. kind of saved, 
uh, tennis the first summer of COVID where he was able to pull off the U.S. Open without spectators. And then the other tournaments followed his his format, what he was able to do, and, and held their tournaments. So he kind of saved things. Did you work he's, with he's, uh, his doubles partner, too, from Vancouver? No, I uh, I only traveled a little bit with Pat, very little. Um, and I would air chart when I did. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I was not a coach to Grant Connell, uh, just to Pat. And Pat played where, UCLA? He played UCLA. He went there as a freshman. He was he was a good junior, and uh, Pat had a two-handed backhand volley. And um, uh, help me, who's the coach at uh, UCLA? Glenn Bassett. Glenn Bassett. So Glenn Bassett said, uh, you know, Pat, let's try a one-handed backhand volley because that's you know that's what all the good volleyers did did so he hit some one and back in volleys and they worked on it for a while and he said let me see that two again and pat hit his two he said keep your two uh he didn't miss uh galbraith uh he was very compact he 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 learned how to set his racket on return to serve he had almost no motion on his volley he played doubles against McEnroe three times one twice and McEnroe said he just bunts the ball yeah, he bunts at 100 miles an hour at your feet. <laughs> so he was he was extremely efficient. And that's just the way Pat's put together. The two-handed backhand volley, we always tell youngsters, you have a better chance of developing a one-handed backhand volley by initially hitting a two-handed volley. Uh, just because they can keep the racket firm and go forward instead of you know having the racket, uh, they're not strong Absolutely. Enough. Just, you know, the strength isn't there at a young age to set the racket. And with on the backhand side, with two, you can. Uh, but when as it gets stronger, uh, you, the flexibility you have with the one is good. That was just so solid. I mean, he used the the big old uh, Wilson profile racket. I mm. mean, uh, he, he a big thick racket. He didn't generate racket speed so much, but the racket did, and he knew how to use it. And he just punched the ball. That, that uh, time, very solid. At that time, uh, Jimmy Connors. In singles, I mean, he won the U.S. Open. He won Wimbledon with Nastasi playing doubles, but he had a two-handed backhand volley. Fru McMillan, two-handed backhand yeah. volley. I kind of, yeah. cr- I got I, I kind of cringe when I hear coaches say no one ever hits a two-handed backhand volley. But I think that's where people oh. have to study the history of not only tennis players, but like we're doing tonight, the, the history of tennis teachers. How about Gorman? Yeah. How much, how much, he's older than you, or the same age? He's uh, Thomas, two years older. So we, uh, when my dad, after 61, he went to Pacific Northwest for 10 summers, two summers at Seattle Tennis Club. And so I got to know and played with uh, Tom Gorman. So we would travel and play the Northwest Circuit. And Tom was a good college player, but not a great player. And then he went into the pros and he was such a good athlete. He just took off. He just, he, he got so good. Where did he play in college? Uh, at Seattle U, Seattle University, uh, just not a big program. Uh, there are a couple guys from the Seattle area that went there. They had a good team. Uh, I don't know if they beat University of Washington then, but uh, Seattle University. I mean, yeah, he. I, I don't think he was an accomplished college player. For our, but, for our uh, listeners, he, he was top ten in the world, correct? Yes. And then he came. Then yeah, he came I mean, the he Davis was Cup captain. Yeah, 
and, uh, you know, had good success as a player in Davis Cup uh, and then as a captain. With uh, something we do uh, like an everyday basis, there's seldom a day that we don't do it, is the Jim Verdict 10-minute warm-up drill. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Well, uh, that is one of the many things that Coach developed over time. And I talked to Brother Randy, and I said, you know, do you remember that? He said, we didn't do that. He said, that came later. So that wasn't something that we did, but that's something that got everybody to focus, uh, you know, uh, and warm up by seeing the ball, hitting the ball, controlling the ball. Uh, don't just go out whacking the ball, you know, and you had to do so many in a row. So we, we didn't grow up with that. Okay. Uh, but that that just shows how he you know, how he evolved. Um, there's another thing I could read here for you, Steve, that uh, he wrote on the bulletin, the chalkboard at the courts. He had a big chalkboard. And then I see it printed here. So I think he gave it out at, uh, you know, different classes and this or that. But I remember I would go up to the university and I would see it there. I say, well, that's pretty impressive. So he would, uh, it says uh, in big letters, practice over, question mark. What have you done today to be a better player? Are you stronger? Are you quicker? Are you faster? Is your endurance increased? What shot is improved? Serve, return a serve, volley, forehand, backhand, overhead, lob. Whether you have enough, play with more poise, class, and confidence than your opponent. Temperament or outbursts are the only shots working for the loser. So he just had that there, and he hoped his guys would look at it from time to time. But uh, that was his philosophy. You know, step by step, ball by ball, shot by shot, make it better. Reminds me, I had the chance to work with Ray Shonky, a football player. And he played for Lombardi, he played for Landry, and he played for George Allen. And what he said about, oh boy. What he said about George Allen, in fact, uh, he actually was the only player uh, Lombardi retired after he, he was at Green Bay. He retired, and then after a year, uh, started coaching Washington. And Shonky was the only guy who was, had played for Lombardi. And everybody said, "Is it really that tough?" And he said, "You know, it's tougher than you can ever imagine." <laughs> but he said that George Allen would always, you know, before they. I think that was back in the '60s. I remember that coaches would, uh, you know. If they get your last name, take attendance, and they ask you your mile time. But it was like, how, how many how many push ups can you do? And can you do one good push up? I loved your dad. Oh, he had so many of these lines. Uh, don't you want to get one percent better? Tell us about SWIM, the the the, the uh, acronym for SWIM. Yeah, so he he would do his clinics, and I would go back to Hilton Head at the PTR symposiums, and he would. You get a group of people and they were very attentive. And so he would make a point and then he would say, see what I mean? And he would say that over and over again to where other people started repeating it. See what I mean? So uh, PTR gave him a hat that said swim on it. <laughs> S-W-I-M. See what I mean. Uh, could you go back and give us the four P's again? Yeah. Uh, just what I wrote down because it came to me in my head. Practice. Persistence, poise, pride. Yeah, that was another one. Your dad would always you'd always ask, "Don't you have any pride?" Um, take- pride, but he was also huge on poise. Uh, 
you know, a, a quick story. I was, uh, he was, one of my lessons, I was working on half falling. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how many people take a lot of time spent on half volleys, but he was feeding me half volleys and I would hit some and then I'd miss and then I'd hit some more and I'd miss. So after one miss, I picked up a ball and I belted it over the parking lot onto the roof of the gym, which was across the street and coach didn't flinch. You know, he just, we had more work to do. So he fed me more half volleys and, uh, I hit some more and I missed again. I picked up a ball and I belted that over the parking lot onto the deck. And at that point he had enough. And he said, what makes you think you're so good? You can't miss. And the whole time I'm thinking, how can I be this bad? And what, uh, kicked coach off is that I showed no poise. You know, if, if you get mad when you miss a ball, you're going to miss the next ball. So, uh, poise was the, the main point that I had to, to learn there, not necessarily the shot, you know, I'd, I'd get that eventually. So, um, mm. you know, that was important to him. That's, that's how you come through in the clutch and a point for nationals. You've got more poise than the other guy. Well, I, you've been there before you've done it before you're going to do it. Great charisma, great poise. Go ahead. Brandon. I have another, another P word that came to my mind. Just listening to you talk <laughs> about your dad is, uh, principles. Oh boy. Yeah, and there were those two. I think on his podcast, you told about uh, how he defaulted a player that abused the, the referee. And uh, Ojai was a big tournament my freshman year uh, playing with a senior who's the guy that convinced me to go to Redlands. Uh, we were in the finals, and we were having a bad day and acting like total jerks. And Coach walked out, uh, said the match was over. He defaulted us on the spot. We were done. And, uh, uh, another lesson to be learned. Mm. Didn't do that. Hmm. That didn't work. How about I you think know? he's, he's go ahead. Go ahead. I just, no, I think you said he, he didn't swear. And yeah. you know, when he got mad, he might say booger poop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He didn't swear, but he had one of those looks where he looked at you. You knew when he was upset, he'd get mad, but didn't necessarily curse. And we did our share of, uh, we when we got in trouble, we usually did kangaroos, which is where you jump up, bring your knees up to your chest, and we did a lot of kangaroos. I think also the listeners should know, Coach Verdick. If one kid would drop the racket, everybody would do kangaroos. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it was yeah, it was a team effort. Your dad used to talk about Harry Hopman. I think that that's where the kangaroos came from. I guess exactly. I, I guess Emerson used to do three hundred a day. Um. <laughs> You know, I think you could, you, it's true that you can really measure an athlete by, by by how well they jump. Well, it was an explosive, uh, you know, form of exercise, and, and and tennis needs explosive movement. Yeah, your dad was so we, he was a fanatic about footwork as well. Yep, uh, we did a growing up as kids. We we had a uh, we had a list of exercises we did before dinner and uh, one of them was we called agility reflex where you spread your feet a little bit wider than shoulder width and you just go kind of run in place as fast as you can your feet can go it's just and we do that for 10 seconds and then rest you do another 10 seconds just trying to develop quick feet yeah the typewriter drill just stand in one place typewriter yeah feet as fast as you can go 
Now, you know, now, now a kid doesn't know what a typewriter is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And you, what about you and Randy post post Redlands and, and playing afterwards in your careers? Well, uh, I graduated in 1970. Uh, open tennis wasn't there yet. There wasn't much money. I didn't think I had the weapons to be successful. So I didn't pursue playing. I played a couple summers, uh, smaller tournaments in Europe, but uh, I, I started teaching tennis and I wasn't going to teach. I was going to, I actually got some books to study uh, insurance because my, uh, when I was a freshman, my senior partner, his dad had an insurance company in Laguna Beach. And, uh, and I was starting to study. And then Vic Braden called me to be a young pro at a new club he had developed in Laguna Niguel. So I threw the books away and then, uh, you know, started teaching tennis. And uh, Randy and I uh, played, he would come up to the Pacific Northwest. We would have the Washington State Open, uh, which is a biggest tournament in the Northwest. And we would play the 35 doubles. So we won that nine out of 10 years. Uh, I was 37. He was 35 when he came, first came up. And then we did that for a while. Uh, so, you know, I lived in Seattle. He lived in Southern Cal. So we didn't get together all that often. And he didn't pursue the tennis at all. Uh, he actually pursued professional football. He uh, tried out for a Rams. The Rams is a walk-on. They tied him in the 40, and they said, uh, you're too slow. And he said, well, let me hit somebody. And they, he was a defensive back. They they said, if you can't catch him, you can't hit him. And he was, his football career was over. <laughs> wow. So that was it. Uh, he taught tennis for a while, and then he did well in commercial real estate. Real well. And your sisters, did they play? Uh, they played in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would joke that uh, Doug and Randy got tennis, traveled all over. Uh, we got braces. <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't get braces. We, we could use them. But uh, they played in high school, not serious about it. And uh, the older sister, Chris, wasn't always happy to be uh, – to be dragged along to join the family up in the Pacific Northwest because she was a little older. She had a boyfriend and she was wanted to stay home in Redland. So uh, they're all proud of what coaches accomplished. Uh, happy they were part of that family. Uh, the verdict name uh, means a lot to all of us. And uh, but they they didn't pursue it uh, as as athletes. The uh, Redland facility, the tennis facility, is named after your dad, right? It's uh, it, it, they they put up a sign when he retired called Verdict Court, and uh, it's it's a big blue sign. And the first when they first put it up, it kept getting stolen, and so the city made extras, and then they quit stealing them. So I have one in my backyard, and Sister Chris has one in her yard. It says Verdict Court. And then we are in the process of uh, fundraising, raising $3 million to rebuild the tennis facility, and it will be called the Coach Jim Verdick Tennis Center. Mm. Oh, that's great. And uh, we're, we're far enough along where we think construction will be able to start uh, in 2022 at the end of the school year. And we have one alum that is uh, was one of his – all-American national champions that has a demolition company, and he's going to provide the demo work of the existing courts. 
And then another alum who was not a tennis player but builds courts, uh, he's going to donate his services services to build the courts at his cost. So we have a group coming together to create the Coach Jim Verdick Tennis Center. Pretty excited about it. That is That's exciting. Great. Yeah, I know there's there's some ev- certainly some events or some awards that are named after your dad, uh, which is great. How about Stephanie Ray? Where she's much younger than you, correct? Were you around when your dad was coaching her? Uh, no, she was much younger. And again, I moved out of the area, uh, moved to Hawaii in '72, uh, and then up to Seattle. So uh, I didn't know Stephanie, but uh, he worked with her at a very young age. And uh, she obviously became very good. Yeah. He no, I, was. Uh, I remember that she, she, yeah. uh, she continued to work with him too. It wasn't, you know, because I can remember one time being with him and uh, he came to our school, which was based in Tyler, Texas. And uh, he'd already been retired from Redlands, but he was, when he was going back, he was going to spend time with Ray. Which would, I remember that, yeah. got, that got the attention of our students because, you know, she became a world-class player. Well, and he started with her when she was just a little thing. And, you know, he he tossed the balls like he did everybody else and hit the targets, and she became very, very efficient. And uh, these days you're you're retired? You're still? Yeah, I I retired. I I was at Seattle Tennis Club 33 years. I actually left after nine years and did commercial real estate for six and discovered it wasn't me. And then they hired me back, so I was there another 24 years. And um, at 67 and a half, I retired. And so I'm still playing a little bit, but uh, being one of uh, a believer and coach and working hard, I've had 13 surgeries. I totally beat myself up. Eight knees, both replaced, two spinal fusions, new hip, shoulder put back together so i play but i'm 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 an old guy uh gimping around (laughs) you know i've never been to seattle i've been to so many cities in the united states to run workshops i did go to walla walla one time um tom fi who was on the vic braden staff uh rick schroeder ted schroeder's son and i i should say rick schroeder is the son of ted who First time he played Wimbledon, he won it. The Schroeder and I went up to Walla Walla, a beautiful part of the country, but I've never had a chance to, you know, go to Seattle. Um, that's a beautiful club, though. I mean, I've looked online. It's, tell us a little bit about the Seattle Tennis Club. It's a beautiful place. It started in 1890, so it's one of the oldest in the country. It's on Lake Washington, so some of the members come by boat. Bill Gates grew up there. He's a member. He has a home across the lake, so... He'll show up by car or boat, and usually when I see a big SUV in the parking lot, I figure Bill Gates is here because you don't see the security with him, but I think security follows him. Uh, but it's we've got a 10-year wait list to join the club, uh, which is unusual, but it's, uh, you know, they just can only take so many members. Mm. Was it, was yeah, and, that, and again, that's that's where Tom Gorman grew up, and then Trish Bostrom, who was a good women's player, she grew up there. Is still a member. Um, when you were there, yeah, was pretty played. Was a lot of your work off the court as well as a tennis teaching professional. Yeah, I mean, as director of tennis, you're running the tennis program, so it's there, there's the teaching on the court, uh, and then there's 
all the work off the court. And any teaching pro knows that, you know, running the, the women's leagues and the kids' programs and the tournaments, uh, it's a lot. Uh, people will think, oh, you have such a dream job. All you do is play tennis. No, not, that's not the job. Yeah, so I did it for a long time and was very ready to retire. People say, do you miss it? Not for a second. <laughs> and are, but you're still at the club? Uh, you're still knocking some balls? Uh, yeah, I, I, I stayed a member, so I'm still at the club, and uh, it's it's a good place to go to. Um, I'm on a men's night team. We're into the semis now in the playoffs, so something to look forward to. So I'm still trying to put coach coaches' lessons to, to use and still trying to bat the ball. Um, if you were to think about, you know, Tennis years ago, one of our guests, uh, Dave Anderson, we asked him how to improve American tennis, and he had a great answer. He said the the movie, the, the theme, Back to the Future. Uh, what do you think we need to do to make American tennis better? Oh, boy. Um, I think we all would like to know the answer to that, to have the solution to that. You know, I, I look at the the way players used to develop through college and coach was unusual because, you know, he, he would just take somebody with raw talent that had the desire and the work ethic. And that's all he needed to four years to train him and become a tennis player. Um, but are Americans soft? I don't know. I've always said, it seems like so many of the best athletes don't go into tennis because America is such a team sport country, you know, football, basketball, baseball. I mean, they get the, the athletes. There's good athletes in tennis, but uh, what are we missing? Um, I don't, I don't know that they're doing what I did growing up as a kid and, you know, what coach did with his players. Uh, But college tennis was where everybody had that opportunity with the right coach to, to greatly improve. Uh, but so many of the better juniors don't go to college now. You know, they'll turn pro. There's money there. Well, you better be damn good before you start chasing that. Yeah, we call our curriculum, uh, we put together the great base, and your dad is one of the pillars. We had, we have eight, and with, I tell people, we should start, we should change our the name of the program instead of great base called Solid Fundamentals. Uh, the, the idea of great base, you know, how can you argue with a young kid not having a great base? But I think this instant gratification, game based. Now, your dad, you know, he he was so unique that he taught fundamentals. So he did the form teaching, but he also combined it with game based. I mean, he was always, you know, making it as you said, making it competitive. But but he always came back to basics. And I think that football is is like okay. He was the smallest center and what he, what he did personally as far as technique. But uh, your dad was a technician. I think that's one thing that's really missing. Um, I mean, it's, it is uh, amazing to see how pickleball is invading tennis and yeah. instant gratification. It's fun. and I mean, I, Easy to play, smaller court. Yeah. That's physical. But I think it just – yeah. It, it it takes time, but I think now, you know, kids spend a lot of time on these electronic gadgets, their phone being in their pocket. Um, and, you know, I think it's struggle. You struggle with uh, kids being able to just catch a ball and throw a ball. 
It's with basic, basic athleticism. I mean, kids, uh, you know, my mother passed away several years ago now, but she said uh, towards the end of her life, she said, kids don't play outside anymore. You know, I mean, I wasn't. Yeah, I, it's a different world. Yeah. And and I know there's the USDA has their programs and this and that, but, but I don't know that that's the answer to develop American talent. Uh, you need to find coaches at a local level that, that have the expertise to take a kid and, and help them grow and mm. be people. As I listened to some of Jim Lair's uh, talk and he's so phenomenal. He's great. And it's, it's all about the parents, you know, let them be people, let them be people first, uh, but somebody locally that can develop them and, and bring them along and not have to send them to an academy that they don't really know them. And they start feeling like I'm all that. And uh, are they continuing that same development or are they being pushed down a different path? Uh, you start getting technique where, you know, what's the latest and greatest new fancy way? Well, that may not be the best way for that kid. Uh, of the players that are here, I, I like, um, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank, uh, Sebastian Corda? Sebastian Corda. Yeah. Corda, yeah. Sebastian Corda. I, I mean, I, I like what I see with his game. You know, his his temperament, uh, the different strokes he's developing. Uh, he looks like he could be the real deal. Uh, and, and I'm not sure where he developed. Maybe through his parents uh, being such a strong emphasis on uh, Sebastian and his sisters. Mm. Uh, the family's very successful. But I don't know what his path has been. Um, so I, I don't know what the answer is. Well, one of I our, wish I did. One of our guests, uh, Matt Clore, who spent years and years with us in different capacities. We've done a number of ten tennis projects together. He talks about the opportunity he had to watch Sebastian Corda uh, hit with his dad and just go very slow and hit every ball on balance, you know, service line to service line. I read where parents were very clever. Obviously, they're both world-class athletes. But as a young teenage boy, at one point when he and he was playing ice hockey, he played other sports. They only let him play. Yeah. They only let him play girls. At uh, you know, they were based at IMG at uh, Nick Baltieri's, which now is a major campus with a multiple number of sports. But uh, yeah, just, there's so many things go behind um, someone becoming a very good player. That that expression no no substitute for a good beginning. But your dad did it in college tennis where. I mean, I would say that in a, in a certain way, he treated everybody like a beginner. Okay, we're going to go back. We're going to take, take you right from point A to point B, and this is the purpose. This is the this is the journey. Um, I think many times today, I get myself in trouble, but people are masquerading as a tennis teacher because they don't work with beginners. You know, they're at you know, it's become too much of a business and not enough of a sport. I mean, I cringe every time you got a junior tournament. And, you know, you're with a player who hits quite well and somebody's there handing them a business card, you know, kind of like the merchant of flesh. You know, I think the federations that do that, the academies do that many times. Um, that's one thing that's happened. They, they, they take players away from their coach. One thing that's happened in Canada, the Canadians have always had a superiority complex in hockey. But for a long time, I grew up 10 miles from, from Canada. And I, I lived in Canada for two years, spent a lot of time coaching Canadians. And they used to have an inferiority complex in tennis, but they don't now. Now they can stay home. No, they can stay home. And they can stay home in the snowbanks, 
and they don't think they have to get on an airplane and go to Florida. Granted that one thing is that Hungry Dog Hunts Best, they have a lot of immigrants um, that are, you know, really working, working hard. Um, I think that's one thing that's, uh, with your dad is uh, he was such a hard worker himself. He was, he was a walking example. And, you know, that had to have so much to do with his success as well. Well, and, and you mentioned with the quarter, you know, tossing balls and this and that. And that was the whole approach. Uh, make it simple so you're successful and do it right. So if you hit 100 balls wrong, it's still wrong. So hitting balls, repetition, doing the wrong thing doesn't make you a better player. Uh, with Galbraith, he would come home from the tour and he'd say, I'm in trouble with my volley. And, and it was hard for me to believe because his volley was so basic there was nothing extra in it so the correction for pat uh is i would have him across the net i would toss underhand to his forehand volley he would volley back so i could catch it hmm. toss it he'd volley back so i could catch it and then i'd toss to his back end, he'd volley back so i could catch it and then i would mix it up and then i would vary it and he was fixed that's all he needed he just needed to, to get simple again he just needed to bring it back in just put the racket where the ball is have it go where you want the ball to go. And he was fixed. I say, okay, see you later. <laughs> and back go win another tournament. I mean, it's just because we made it simple. We made it pat. We made it what he knew he could do. And he, somewhere he got off track, he started doing too much. Uh, sounds like Corda had some, some good ball control discipline. Yeah, uh, in his life, you can definitely see it in his game. Um, and he says about his yeah. his mother would never let him get upset. He really does keep his cool, great head on his shoulders. What about the lineup at Redlands? How was that formed? Uh, totally by the latter. Uh, always was. Uh, very, very few exceptions. There may have been one national where coach had to make a decision between two guys. And certainly had him play a challenge match, but I think he said that he ended up taking one rather than the other because he was a better doubles player, and he couldn't afford to take seven guys. Didn't have the budget. Wow. But, uh, you know, and again, as I said, my senior year, I started off second in a round robin, so I started off number two on the ladder, and I had to beat the guy that was number one to move back up. And uh, challenge matches, we hated them. They were tough. But it, that's where you learned to compete. That's where you learned poise. That's where you learned to get it done under pressure. And it was all about competition uh, will make you better if you, do, if you approach it properly. You're, you're junior. And if you didn't. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I cut you off. I apologize. Um, but you're going to say if you didn't. Um, with, uh, I'm sorry, but train of thought. With let me ask this um, again. I apologize for interrupting. With uh, five sets, how many times in juniors or in college did you play five sets? Best of five. Never. Sets. Always best of three. Never. Always best of three. But and it was back in the old days where uh, you played regular scoring. Uh, you played a set out. There was no no ad. There were no tiebreakers. Uh, a team match in college, it was two out of three sets in singles, two out of three sets in doubles, uh, every match. Uh, and you played till you, everybody finished every match. There was no shortcuts. Uh, 
so it was a lot more tenants. And again, with competition, uh, coach would schedule uh, two matches in a day. He was limited how many days uh, of ma- match days he could have, so he'd play two in a day. And that only counted as one match day. Uh, we might play, you know, somebody from out of town in the morning and or a league match in the morning and somebody from out of town in the afternoon and do that on a Saturday and maybe a Saturday, Sunday. So we just a lot of matches. Yeah, I counted up in coaches 38 years. He averaged 32 matches a year, uh, a season that he could uh, legally do. So he maxed it out. Wow. A lot of tennis. <laughs> Brandon, go ahead. Let's just wrap it up with another question or two. This is great, though. Yeah, no, thanks so much for joining us. This has been really great for, for me personally to to listen to. And, and then also, I know it's going to be great for everyone listening to the podcast. But uh, just from from your own experience, you know, being a director of tennis um, as, a, as a college player, junior player, is there any advice um, that you could give uh, to players, coaches, uh, parents, just if you were to kind of simplify that um, to wrap things up? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're blessed to find somebody that uh, is a good teacher, that understands the game and is nurturing for your player uh, as a person, as well as, as an athlete, as a, uh, a tennis individual, uh, stay with them. Mm. Uh, you'll gain more by uh, loyalty to them because they'll have loyalty to you and just work through the process. Uh, people jump around, the grass is greener somewhere else, I'll go to the other club, and then they come back. Mm. Uh, sorry that wasn't the case. So uh, find a good person uh, and then take advantage of it. You'll, you'll benefit in the, in the, in the end. That's great, great advice. Thank you. No, I'm so glad you said that. So many people bop and shop and all the time. Um, yeah, um, yeah. With uh, no, I've, I've worked with many players where they get to now. I mean, they can only they can be a really good 12 year old. Um, I've coached a lot of kids who've been number one in the 14s, and we say you know start the course and stay the course. Um, and that's where, again, for us, your your dad um, just. We do have for the uh, the listeners so many things uh, on our content. I think like if you were to you go to YouTube and look up Jim Verdick ten minute warm up drill. Um, it, I mean, he was so good teaching doubles. Amazing. Oh yeah, amazing how he taught doubles. Yeah, he yeah yeah, and he worked hard on his doubles. He his teams uh, that was an important point. Yeah, uh, he, win the doubles point. He'd get the trash yeah. can out there and he'd put it. And he, you know, Vandermeer was so gracious in telling people that he, your dad taught him so much about tennis, and they became such great friends. But you know, he would put, uh, you know, he would build the doubles with what player number one, the server has to do, and then the partner, the server, the returner. But you know, the person in the hot seat, the person, the, the part, the partner of the returner. And, you know, he just, I remember uh, his, he would always get the garbage can out there and, and, you know, could you, when you got that high volley, you'd go right to the middle of the court and be able to nail the garbage yep. can. Um, yep. But, uh, no, Doug, it's been great to have you on. I'd love to have you on again. Um, um, with our listeners, I'll follow up and I'd love to get uh, 
a letter, a copy of the letter that we could share, and then even the the questionnaire. You know. Yes. That would be yeah. fantastic. But again, yeah. it's, uh, oh. th- thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Steve. Uh, good job, you guys. I, I greatly appreciate what you're doing for everybody. Oh, thank it's, you. It's needed. Yeah, we're just trying to carry the torch. I think that um, there's so many great tennis teachers from 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 that have gone before us, tennis teachers, tennis coaches. I, I don't know why. My ice hockey background, I mean, I think of uh, Bobby Orr. No one would ever say Bobby Orr couldn't play in today's game. I always tell people if they want to see how great tennis was played years ago, just go to, uh, I think it was in uh, 70, 76. Uh, just go to uh, Caesar's Palace, Jimmy Connors versus Rod Laver. And you know, yeah. Laver was semi retired, and Connors, and Laver was easy going. said, Yeah, it's okay. Connors, he made sure part of the deal was the tennis ball cans had to be open for two days. Because Connors wanted to slow it down, and um, you know, and Rod Laver sounds like Jimmy. Rod Laver, I uh, had a chance to talk to him one time about that. He's so humble, and I said, "This is way back when." And I said, uh, "You ever go to YouTube?" And he goes, "Well, my this is way back when." He says, "Well, my nephew goes to YouTube." I said, I "said Mr. Laver, sir, you need to go plug that in um, because I don't think we have enough appreciation for the past, and that's that's really what we're trying to do with our curriculum." is we haven't invented anything. You know, I mean, we have a few ideas of our own, but basically, um, you know, we could talk about so many things. Uh, for example, you worked with Braden. That could be another conversation. We were a little disappointed with the, the movie uh, King Richard uh, because uh, we don't want to spoil it for you, but uh, Vic has a scene in that movie that really never took place. But um, so many, so many things we could talk to you about. But uh, it's been great. And I think the more our, Listeners can know about what your father stood for and and just, I mean, if people could just get one, two percent of uh, what Jim Verdict did, tennis would be better. But uh, Doug, thanks again. Appreciate it. Thanks. All Doug. right. Thank you both. All right. Bye. Take care. Take yeah. care. Bye. Well, that was great. Brandon, any comments on that? We'll wrap it up here. No, I thought that was, that was phenomenal. Everyone in tennis needs to needs to listen to that and learn from that. And I think the big thing is the, you know, one of the big things, one big takeaway for me is the experience of translating from other sports, the toughness from football into tennis, which that doesn't really exist very much in tennis, the toughness. Yeah. And you know, I like the line, that, uh, you know, a kid is still a kid. The times have changed. All right. Uh, I was working out in Memphis, uh, the nonprofit program and this nice kid showed up in the summertime and every day he had an extra bottle of coconut water. Mm. Coach, I brought you coconut water. It was such a nice gesture, but I'm thinking um, years ago, I mean, coaches were wrong for not even letting kids drink water. You know, you'd, in football, you'd want to get knocked down so you could lick the dew off the grass. But when, <laughs> when we finally, they'd finally let you drink water, you'd use a soup ladle and you'd drink it out of a bucket. Right. But, um, no, no, so many great things. Uh, Note taking uh, from the the end where he talked about being loyal to your coach. Right. To I mean that letter, um, but he would, you know, what incoming freshman would read, um, you know, and also too is Coach Jim Verdict. I mean, he's a bright guy. I mean, two degrees from Stanford. I mean, the, you know, we, there's so many things we we could have talked about his uh, experiences. Uh, 
serving in the military too. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. First class all the way. But uh, podcast number 68. That's a good one. Brandon, thanks for your time. Listeners, thanks for listening. Adios, amigos. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Doug Verdick.